Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Greetings and welcome back to another episode of Dollars and Sensibility. I am Andrew Martz here with the infamous co-host, Dr. Bill McBride. Are you a Reverend, doctor yet? Reverend. You have, you are, Reverend you're a lordship. Probably some other things that people call me behind my back. <laughs> you got a lot of titles and a, and a lot uh, yeah. of letters behind your name, which is good. That's a good thing. <laughs> Um, hey, today we are talking about a topic that, I, if I'm being honest, we, we, you and I, Dollars and Sensibility, we're a little late to the game on this. But because of the nature of how this has unfolded, I thought it was important to make sure we had some real meat on the bones to discuss. So what are we talking about today? It is a 2022 crypto update, but really, we're going to focus a lot on this FTX story, which is just Sam, what are you outrageous. Doing? <laughs> and <laughs> SBF, SBF what are we doing? So the media calls him SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried. So if you, if you haven't been keeping up with this story, over the last number of weeks, and we're recording this early December of, of 2022, so over the last number of weeks, we have seen a real uh, contagion and toxic event take place in the crypto markets, all centered around a cryptocurrency trading firm called FTX. Now, FTX is what uh, they they call themselves a crypto exchange. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about what that word means, what a crypto exchange is, but just for some some context. So, FTX was founded in in two thousand and eighteen. Uh, by Sam Bankman-Fried, who is an MIT scholar who spent some time on Wall Street with major hedge funds and got together with some other, you know, smart guys and gals and started this cryptocurrency firm in the height of the excitement around decentralized finance and, and cryptocurrency. So it, it, to get some context around what's going on, you know, it, we've seen Bitcoin now launch was 2009, 2012 and 13. It started to trickle its way into kind of the mainstream blogs and the mainstream part of part of the Internet. But it didn't really catch the attention of most investors until 2017. Specifically, you probably remember this, Bill. It was Thanksgiving week of 2017, where uh, I think it was Coinbase at the time, or maybe Gemini, one of the, the big crypto exchanges, had more accounts open in that week than it had in the previous year. And this was when Bitcoin and some of the other more popularly traded cryptocurrencies saw this huge, huge, huge run up in value. That was the first time uh, Bitcoin, I think, was hitting like 16,000, 17,000. Previously, had been like you know, a couple hundred bucks, a couple thousand dollars, and then had this huge, huge run up. So as this is going on, uh, we start to see innovation in the crypto markets and, and now enters FTX. So 
there's a Forbes article here that, that we're looking at uh, titled the FTX debacle. Is there any way to calm crypto investors down? So I don't know if you're listening to this today and do you own cryptocurrency? Have you jumped on to some of these big crypto exchanges, Coinbase, Gemini, and the other retail friendly? Have you bought some Bitcoin and Ethereum and maybe some other coins in the excitement? If you have, you've probably seen a tremendous downward uh, spiral of the value of your account and or coins. And now that that started well before all this FTX debacle um, came to a head. But what has now unfolded has certainly added gasoline to to the fire. So l- let me clarify a little bit, Andrew, the the beginning or the origins of FTX for our listeners out there who are you know thinking, hey, you know what's what's an exchange? What's cryptocurrency? What's what's what? Uh, and and let's while we're at it, debunk a few things, uh, some mis- misconceptions people had about it. So FTX is an abbreviation of futures exchange. Now, in the cryptocurrency world, you can't buy and sell stocks or futures of stocks on a cryptocurrency exchange. Cryptocurrency exchanges are for the exchange of cryptocurrency. So I I think out of the gate, Andrew, very misleading, uh, Sam SBF, Gary Wang, and... uh, Caroline Ellison, I'm going to bring her name up again later on in this uh, in this podcast. Those three forming FTX, they knew what they're doing, right? They're they're twenty somethings, and they know, like you said in 2017, they know the FOMO that can ensue with people's misunderstanding of how cryptocurrency works. Okay. A lot of people think that a currency exchange, a crypto, pardon me, a cryptocurrency exchange, very different than a regular currency exchange, cryptocurrency exchange has some of the same features that a currency exchange or a stock exchange would. It doesn't. And we'll hit, we'll touch on that later as well. But I thought it was important that FTX was created as a cryptocurrency exchange, and then they went on to... Uh, mine or develop their own cryptocurrency, which was called FTT. Right. Which which becomes very popular amongst a lot of these these cryptocurrency players is to take very liquid cryptocurrencies, something like a Bitcoin or an, an Ethereum, and exchange those for their own private coins that are generally less marketable, less liquid, you know, a lot more speculative. Now that that's very good for the owners or the holders and the creators of those coins. And it, it potentially could be good for the investors, but there's also a tremendous amount of risk. So, uh, you know, so let, let's, let's back up and, and really think about, well, what, how, how did FTX get to the place in, in where it is today? And what was all uh, of the drama surrounding it? So the first thing that you can notice about FTX was in a very short period of time, their name was everywhere. They were the named sponsor of the Miami Heat, the NBA team, their arena. So they had naming rights to to the arena down there. They were sponsoring Super Bowl commercials. They had celebrity endorsements. 
probably the most famous by Tom Brady, who allegedly had a lot of his wealth tied up into the exchange, into the, the coins there. So you have to think about, well, where does the money from something like this come from? Well, can, hopefully where it's coming from is the company generating profits of the normal business activities and then taking those profits and, and reinvesting. Here's where kind of the fraud and the, the disillusionment in this company came. What happened was they were taking customer deposits, right? So on this exchange, they were essentially acting as just a, a ledger company. They were they were recording transactions, buys and sells of different cryptocurrencies, but not actually going onto the blockchain and executing on those trades. And then, much like a bank does in our system, they'll take those funds and go do other activities. Now, in normal banking, there's regulation between what you can and cannot do with customer deposits. Those same sorts of regulations do not exist in the cryptocurrency world. So what, what did they go do? They went and bought naming rights to stadiums. They went and got celebrity endorsements. They went and you know put advertisements on some of the biggest places in the world. They created partnerships with the World Economic Forum. They, what else did they do? They I mean, it, well, it, some what, of the, the... What they primarily did, Andrew, though, was, was let's, let's be real. They raised capital. So the, the scheme here, in, it was founded in May... Well, they of, raised capital, but, uh, but under f- false pretenses. I, I, well, exactly, right? So how, how, do you, how do you meet with the, you know, the owners of the Miami Heat arena and say, hey, can you name it, right? You need some money to do that. And if you just start, right. if you just start a currency exchange... Well, yes, there's probably some uh, commissions to be made from you know the, uh, the currency trading that goes on there, but it started in May of 2019. Now, harken back, right? That was seven, eight months before COVID. Now, eight months into it, now you've got a lot of people sitting around and paying a little bit more attention, let's say it, bored, if you will, and looking yep. to make a quick buck, stock market tanks 25% in the matter of two weeks. And then you see this, this classic, you know, let's get rich quick scheme. Now, the, the hard part about this, to, to, the hard part to swallow is that the average investor didn't understand that it wasn't a bank, that a, that a FTX, that a cryptocurrency exchange was allowed to or not allowed to because it's, it's not regulated at all. There's no regulation as to what they can do with the money. The venture capitalists, I, I think these are the people that, that really y- y- you want to kind of like get them in a room and go, what, do you, what were you thinking, right? Because like, these venture capitalists threw $100 million, $2 billion, There was an $18 billion valuation. And in July of 2021, again, kind of height of COVID, 900 million was raised for an 18 billion, uh, 18 billion valuation. It's just from 60 different investors. A couple big boys in there too, right? Sequoia Capital, they're, they're no small chicken, right? Yep. So fast forward, next thing you know, where's the $2 billion, right? I don't know, I'm, get, I'm getting ahead of it, but. Ten, ten, ten billion dollars. Where's the $10 billion? It's up to 10 now? $10 billion was oh, in boy. customer deposits missing. And that, that's wow. the question is where is the $10 billion? It, 
It reminds me of that scene from Wolf of Wall Street, like Matthew McConaughey, which honestly pissed me off at the time. Like, it's a Feezy, it's a Fugazi, right? Like, who's this scumbag, right? But, but this, is, this is actually accurate for crypto, right? Where did the money go? Well, I don't know. What, what do you think? Is it an offshore account? Is it in duffel bags? So just, and this wasn't in, in any of the show notes, but just a few days ago, at the end of last week, the New York Times deal book conference in New York, Andrew Sorkin interviewed Sam Bankman-Fried for the first time since all of this kind of live. And what was fascinating was he just flat out asked, like, where is the money? And he didn't really have a good response for where is the money? Because... Uh, you know, right now the entire company is been headquartered in the Bahamas and they moved there about six months prior to all of this kind of unfolding. And they live in luxury houses and, you know, communities, I mean, multi, multi-million dollar residences. They were saying that one of the residences where, where all the team lives, right? So that Caroline girl and uh, you know, all the top leadership of this company, it, like for context, it's the same place where like a Tiger Woods and a Justin Timberlake and all of these like ultra wealthy celebrities and athletes have places when they go to to the Bahamas. So very exclusive and very, very expensive. And the interconnectivity of the FTX machine, and I call it the FTX machine because I think it was two or three weeks ago, they filed for bankruptcy. Well, in bankruptcy, all of the disclosure that you have to make as a corporation shows who all the depositors were and creditors and associated firms and who's on the, the actual balance sheets. And there was 133 subsidiary companies. So the most famous one that gets talked about is Alameda Research, which was the original company that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried started prior to FTX, which it seems Alameda Research was borrowing monies to kind of fill the hole in bad investments from FTX. So that was kind of the first reports that, that came out. But if you continue to kind of follow some of the money, you, you, there is no stopping point. So you can't see where this, this money stops. Um, well, that's, that's why I was hitting on, or, or I was uh, noticing Caroline Ellison at the beginning, right? So Sam starts FTX with Caroline and Gary Wang, and then immediately spins off Alameda and puts Caroline Ellison in charge of that. Mm-hmm. Immediately thereafter, Alameda starts borrowing money from FTX mm-hmm. and vice versa. So it, again, you, you follow the money. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a finite loop. And there was an article uh, in the show notes here from the Wall Street Journal. It says how crypto's collapse may have done the economy a favor. And what's interesting now is, this is a quote from the article. It says, the crypto space is largely circular. This was a uh, um, Yale University economist, Gary, Gary Gorton. And he said, once crypto banks obtain deposits from investors, these firms borrow, lend, and trade with themselves. They don't interconnect with the actual economy or what they call the real economy. And the fascinating part about this was there was so much wealth created within this little echo chamber of crypto and digital currency firms that it's 
you know, it, it became, it becomes a little bit of like the greater fool theory, right? Which we've talked about on this, this podcast before where people are putting their money into these investments, not really understanding what it is or how it works or how it's, how is FTT different from Bitcoin? How is, you know, all these other altcoins different from stable coins, which have some, some real value to them? How are they different from what the central banks are creating on the blockchain? And it's like, well, I don't know. Isn't it's all the same? No, it's not all the same. And all this wealth was created and a few of the players extracted a lot of that money from the system. It, it would seem in this instance that Sand Bankman Freed, the other players, uh, you know, other leadership um, people over at, at FTX were some of those fraudulent, crooked, you know, malicious people who were stealing and taking money. Now, I think this is just my opinion. I believe that they actually believe that it's just how the system works. Like they didn't intentionally do this. It was just, you know, gosh, we, you know, this is a part of capitalism. You make some bad investments, you win some, you lose some. It's like, well, no, because you now have billions of dollars and all of these other people have zero. That's called stealing. I, it is, and I was just thinking that right before you were going to say it, I, was, I, I, I thought to myself, the cryptocurrency world seems to be, a, in its infancy, uh, a, a method for money laundering. Okay, <laughs> but now when, when you know if cryptocurrency, if it started in two thousand eight, and SBF was what twelve years old at the time, right? So, right. right. Then you, you look at. You, 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 you almost want to say you feel bad for them, right? But this is the mentality when you grow up in an environment and you're used to banking and, you know, let's, let's face it, banks, the stock market, it gets a lot of bad press when it comes to the common man, right? That's right. Everybody thinks that institutions or institutional investors or, or the rich are stealing from the poor through these avenues of banks and investments. And- no doubt that happens, right? And in, in certain forms. But for somebody like Sam or Caroline, right? They go, I think they went to Berkeley, right? And, and you know, you're sitting there at Berkeley and you're ready to graduate. Sam went go, to MIT. I don't know where she went. Yeah, it says they started the um, FTX in Berkeley. But, you know, what, wherever you are in, in America... And you're going through your Instagram feed and you're going, this person's got a Lamborghini. And what did they do? They bought cryptocurrency or started their own cryptocurrency. I'm going to do that too. And without the Securities and Ex uh, Exchange Commission, without the FBI or without the White House, whoever we're going to you know, say is supposed to be regulating at some point, if at all, without any kind of regulation, who's to tell them that they can't buy a private jet and start their own cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, you know, again, it's it seems to us we're a little bit older. Um, it's common some sense. Some of us, some of us more than others. Some of us are older than others. <laughs> yes, I know. I, I was waiting for that one. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I like the Wall Street Journal article though. Here's my fear of, of a lot of this situation. Uh, sorry, go ahead. You like the Wall Street Journal article? Yeah, I, I liked it, but I, I really liked the. Um, the the rundown of the affiliate with Alameda and Voyager and Celsius, 
everything had exposure well, break, to each so other. So break, break that break that down for the listener. So there's FTX had a trading affiliate, Alameda Research, right? We already established that Caroline Ellison was in charge of that. Voyager and the other 113. If you notice the the names on the other hundred and hundred and so. Um, other subsidiaries, it's, you know, FTX Japan, FTX Bahamas, FTX you know, mm-hmm. Honduras, and, and all these things. And they're all on the list of creditors, by the way, and there's a, a phone call, uh, a creditor phone call coming up for the bankruptcy hearing or whatever, restructuring hearing on December 20th. So that'll be interesting to see what comes out of that call. But the Wall Street Journal article goes over FTX with its subsidiaries issued its own cryptocurrency, FTT, and it was revealed to be Alameda's main asset. Binance, which was completely independent previous to this, okay? Mm -hmm. Binance, a a different platform, started this whole debacle, right? This FTX, this, let's call it a, not a Ponzi scheme and uh, not a pyramid scheme, but just borrowing from Peter to pay Paul it could have gone on infinitely had Binance not induced this collapse. Right. So there's a whole, and this is why people are now speculating that this whole FTX story is going to be like the next great Michael Lewis movie, something, you know, likened to the big short sidebar. I just read this today. Apparently Michael Lewis had been traveling with Sam Bankman fried for the past six months. So, is potentially already writing the book and the script of what is happening. But this, this whole Binance, which Binance is another cryptocurrency trading firm that in its early days had this relationship with FTX that was mutually beneficial. But the the founder, commonly referred to as CZ, uh, his name is Chengpeng Zhao, and who is a legendary like thought leader within the cryptocurrency industry apparently had some influence over FTT and the financial well-being of FTX and started this domino effect that led to illiquidity, runs on accounts, funds disappearing and you know, it is literally the stuff that like movies are are, are made of. And it, it's interesting because here's my fear and my hope. So my fear is that people are following this right now. And I feel so terrible for like all of the investors and just sort of your average investors who had money in, in FTX accounts and who lost money, whose all their accounts are now, now zero. And what happens is people will say, well, cryptocurrency doesn't work. Cryptocurrency is all a fraud. Cryptocurrency, it's Bitcoin, it's all bad. Blockchain, that's made up. Like this is all just some, all these like nerdy kids are talking about and it it's not real. And the problem is it is. And even through this, this FTX story, major Wall Street institutions, World central banks are making huge investments into creating better, more transparent, easier to use blockchain systems to allow for digital currency to be a cheaper, more effective and faster way to transact peer to peer. And 
the problem there there is this like learning curve, right? For the idealism of of cryptocurrency to really work and take off, like my 85 year old grandmother would have to be able to buy tokens and keep them on a cold storage wallet, which she doesn't, you know, cold storage wallet is one that you left in the freezer on accident to her. Like she doesn't understand what that means. So these, these exchanges, the Coinbase's, the Gemini's, and what a lot of people should be aware of is like, you don't actually own your cryptocurrency when they're held on these non-decentralized platforms. These are just, these are centrally banks that are hold, they're intermediaries, which is kind of ironic because the entire charge, the entire mantra, at least from the, the real hardcore crypto bros and idealists is like, we need to decentralize the finance community, right? DeFi literally means decentralized finance. We need to break down the walls and the barriers and the gatekeepers to finance to allow we, the people, to be able to transact peer-to-peer more transparently, easier and cheaper, and eliminate all this. It opens up all the opportunity for banking around the world. The problem is that there's this huge learning curve in technology. So how do you how do you combat that? Well, it takes a tremendous amount of time. Plus, how do you infuse this and meld this with an existing fiat system that, by the way, isn't one fiat system, right? There's as many fiat systems as there are you know, currencies and economies around the world. So you need to have some sort of regulation, some sort of centralized authority to be able to say, here's how this space is, is going to work. Well, that's the tough part, Andrew, that people are struggling with. If you regulate it, it defeats the purpose of having it, right? So we have US dollars, we've got yen, we've got rubles, you know, everything. We've got all the currencies of the world. Why do we need a cryptocurrency? I, you know, maybe there's some, uh, you know, digital applications that make it simpler for, for use on, on our handheld devices and things like that. But for all intents and purposes, banks and financial institutions are digital now. And the, the rationale for for having cryptocurrency is it, it, as an investment so that it, it gains value or loses value. Right now, like, like you said, there's such a learning curve that you know not everybody's going and using Bitcoin to buy their Starbucks coffee in the morning. And to right. get to that place, I'm afraid, well, we're going to have to go through a lot more pain. I think this is the first of a lot of the pain, the growing pains that we're going to have to go through, much like the internet. And one of the other reasons I like the, the, uh, this article, I learned something new every day, and especially uh, this podcast. They were talking about the uh, contagion and collapse of the free banking era from 1837 to 1863. Now, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of finance, but I, I got to admit, I read that. I was like, I never went back that far. <laughs> You know, like Bank of New York and how J.P. Morgan started. I think we we both had to go through that whole training session. But but uh, apparently in 1837 to 1863, banks issued their own notes. Fraud proliferated and there was runs and suspension of withdrawals and, and regular panics on the banks. This seems to be the first of many of the same idea of what happened back in the mid-1800s. Now, if... If it sticks, if people don't completely lose faith in all cryptocurrency because of that contagion effect, then 
the regulation steps in. And, and I think that's really where the real conundrum is, where I don't, I don't have an answer for this. How do you, how do you regulate cryptocurrency going forward once the arena consolidates? How do you do it? I don't know. Well, because there will be, there will be layers to the, the crypto game. So, for example, there will be people who participate on private blockchains, right? Ones that are more regulated by institutions. So, JP Morgan has their own blockchain. Many other large institutional players will have, have their own blockchain. Central banks will have their own blockchain for, you know, sovereign wealth transactions. Uh, and then there will be public chains, right? Many of which we all have access to today and can see the transferring of funds and the transferring of coins. And we can see this open architecture ledger uh, from now until till the end of time. And who will participate will be dependent on the faith you have in that system, because that that's really kind of what we're talking about here, right? Like cryptocurrency was born out of an era where there was a massive, you know, mistrust in traditional banking systems, right? This was 2008. We saw what, what happened when we left it all to the banks. The banks got too greedy. They got too big to fail and they failed. And who, who was left hurt by that? Not the banks, but the people, the American people and people all over the world. So now you're seeing this, this sort of contagion and collapse within the crypto space, at least, you know, it's a couple of, of kind of isolated events, which could have really far reaching ripples. But what I think is going to happen is, well, you're going to see new innovation, new development, new safeguards put into place, more education for both, you know, the the finance community, uh, for the user community. So uh, essentially, there will I think there will be like the crypto banker of the future, right? So back in the 1800s, you you had bankers at all these different institutions who traded their own notes, right? And and it was I, I was thinking about that too, and I'm, I think we've talked about this on the podcast uh, before. Like before, banks had their own notes. States actually issued their own notes, and then there was no ways to kind of. Uh, keep up with demand, so they privatized the whole system. That was the birth of you know J.P. Morgan and the whole you know Aaron Burr and the gun thing and whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then <laughs> you know banks would create their own notes, and essentially it was just a way to safeguard your funds because everybody was was trading with gold, right? We're on the gold standard, and that was the way that most people it was. You either had land, gold, or you bartered for like goods and services. Now you can paper pellets. Now you could go deposit your gold somewhere safe so you don't have to get shot, you know, and somebody steal your gold. And you can put these JP Morgan bucks or manufacturer Hanover bucks or whatever sort of notes into your your own personal belonging. And then you could go back to the bank and and receive those an equivalent in gold for the notes that you you would return. You're you're absolutely right, Andrew. And you used the word faith at the beginning of that. And I think that's the key element here. Why, why would anybody have faith while there has to be a benefit? Okay, mm -hmm. I, you can have faith. I mean, forget religion, right? But when we're talking about right, money, faith and financial numbers, systems, faith and financial systems, you, you 
there has to be a benefit to you. Either it's like you said, you know, uh, de-risking your life so you don't have to have your gold under your mattress or, or whatever that may be. But without the benefit and until the regulators figure out how to have the average person benefit, there's so much risk there. And the risk isn't so much like it is in, in a stock. It's not, it's not a quantifiable risk anymore because the risk in a stock, you can put a beta on it and you can look at it and go, okay, well, you know, this, this stock returned X uh, last year and it returned Y this year. And, and this is how we can find a risk factor on it. But we see like the FTX debacle, you can have faith in that because you see a benefit and the benefits usually fear, usually greed, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about investing or, or adopting a new currency, but nobody knows the risks or, uh, you know, I, I, I feel a lot of people like ourselves, we know you can lose it all right, right. now. So until, I mean, I, that to me is the bottom line, right? Until there is government regulation, you, you don't have, a, there's no benefit. Even when you say a lot of people like us, I, I would argue that a lot of people like us didn't know the risks because as, as you saw and as it continues to come out, very large, very smart financial institutions put a tremendous amount of money behind this. Very, very wealthy individuals with very smart teams of people put a lot of money be behind this. And that would lead you to believe that somewhere along the line, not specifically you and I, but people like us with just as much ability thought that the risk return ratio made sense for those dollars and that capital being deployed. Great point. And I was, I was getting there too. Did Chang Peng Zhao of Binance, did he purchase that 20% stake in FTX to take it down? That's one question I have. He might have very well done that, right? Number two is the investors at Sequoia Capital or any number of these other firms, venture capital that they infused into FTX, it's not their money. It's the firm's money. And firms are allowed to take risk with the capital of their firm. That's, that's why they call it venture, right? You're taking it. You're taking a chance. So they they know that there's risk here. Obviously, if you're if you're putting you know nine hundred million dollars um, or what was it the um, uh, venture FTX Ventures raised four hundred million uh, at a thirty two billion dollar valuation. If you're throwing four hundred million dollars at a cryptocurrency exchange, you you probably have some faith in that, but. This goes back to the greater fool theory. I have no doubt in my mind that these venture capitalists were counting not on the success of the exchange, but on the, on the success, like all crypto, because it doesn't have any fundamentals, they're counting on the greater fool theory. If we invest in this cryptocurrency exchange and people use it, it will make money. Right. It will be worth more next week than it is today. Period. End of sentence. This might be this might be what we need to talk about next next episode because I, I think that is also very indicative of what what's happening in in the real economy, 
with much of the, the non-cryptocurrency startup world of entrepreneurial America in the last 10 years, but really the last five or six, where a lot of money was being placed with firms on who the leadership was, the story that they could tell, the participation of the user base, the consumer base, not necessarily the profitability, which you and I know is all that really matters in, in a business. How much cash flow will this business make in the future? That That's what I'm buying. So, you know, is, is it indicative of, of what's happening right now in, in the traditional markets? And we're seeing this sort of course correction in 2022, right? So all of your, you know, major, and obviously this is happening most often in, in tech and technology-based companies. So a lot of tech and high tech and high growth companies are now, you know, seeing massive retreats in uh, enterprise value. Simultaneously, you're seeing that happen in the crypto markets. And I don't think what you're talking about is something that is mutually exclusive to just cryptocurrency and, well, you know, the, these types of venture investments. Well, and, and precisely, that's what makes it unpredictable and reliant on faith. You have people in the stock market, if you look at the stats, people that invest in the stock market, by and large, are buy and hold investors. Yes, a lot of day traders out there, but they make up a very small portion of the actual market capitalization of the companies that that they own. If you combine the you know the mutual fund companies, institutional investors, those are the ones that own. Let's just throw out eighty percent, eighty percent of the wealth of of the stock market. Conversely, the cryptocurrency market is the most fickle, and I'll I'll call them reluctantly investors. They are in today, out tomorrow, in today, out 10 minutes from now. And they don't need any other reason other than faith or lack thereof. So to land this plane today, uh, the cryptocurrency market update for 2022, well, it, it has not been good. Um, it has not been a great year for, for cryptocurrency, no matter what cryptocurrency you tend to invest in. And this is not any any sort of financial advice or specific investment advice but i look at the well adopted well you know matured markets bitcoin ethereum uh and and these these sorts of functional cryptocurrencies that exist today along with a lot of the stable coins that exist and i don't think that what's happening with ftx in 2022 and i'm sure we're going to continue to hear the story in 2023 is the end of cryptocurrencies as we know it. I think this is just going to be the next next iteration. So my encouragement is don't don't give up on just like if you were 25 years old and you bought into the GameStop or AMC store and you lost money. That doesn't mean investing doesn't work. It means that that investment didn't work and that investment strategy didn't work. So to me this is a call to continue to educate yourself around what cryptocurrency is watch as this this market matures what it was in 2017 is not what it is today and it certainly is not going to be the same over just the next couple of years because events like what we're seeing today will inevitably 
cause massive innovation, change, potentially some regulation. You know, new people are going to come into the to the to the space, um, create new products, new services, better safeguards. You'll probably also have some nefarious characters in there that are not going to do some great things. So, buyer beware, be caution, be educated, understand what you're doing, understand what you're investing in. But we have not, mark my words, we have not heard the last of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. This is still going to be a thing of the future. Absolutely. And Andrew, I think a good way for the listener to approach this is much in the same way as as you would in hindsight with the tech boom. You have a lot of different companies. The internet and the World Wide Web were two words that scared people. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand how it worked. Thousands of companies went belly up, but... Nowadays, we have you know we have the Amazons of the world that uh, that were profitable. So you know the cream rises to the top. I think we should end there. Hey, by the way, uh, for everyone listening out there, this episode was the result of questions that we get from our listeners. So I want to encourage you: please like, subscribe, leave us comments, shoot us a, a, a note. We want to know what you want to hear about so that we can dialogue, answer your questions, get into the articles, get into the commentary, give you some thoughts, and hopefully make you think a little bit different about the things that are happening in the world today. Um, So please share this episode with a friend if you enjoyed it. We hope you did. Uh, Until next time, I'm Andrew. And Bill. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.